welcome back to the Quacktail Pod. I am Charlie Folkstead, and Reed Tingley is with me. Reed, how you doing, man? I am doing good. Um, I'm I'm pretty excited. It's been kind of midterm season recently, but the parades are about to kick into full force. Mardi Gras is Tuesday, but for Tulane students especially, it's it's pretty much a all day affair from Thursday through Tuesday. So. I'm very excited. So for I have that. a question about that. Do uh, so your professors obviously like know what goes down. Like they understand Mardi Gras. They also live in New Orleans. Do you yeah. ever have to? Do they? Do you get those professors who are like, who address it, or do they just act like it doesn't exist? You know, are you going to like get a homework assignment off for the weekend of Mardi Gras, or is it yeah. still just full steam ahead for them? No, they know most. I've had most a lot of my classes. They like one student's been like oh, are you going to have class on Friday? And they're like, yeah, I was thinking I was going to. And then everyone kind of like sits there awkwardly and then they're like, <laughs> okay, fine. Like you can like watch this YouTube video and like write a little response. And if you do that, you don't have to come. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we get, mon- we get Monday off. Um, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, we get Monday and Tuesday off. So that's that's nice too. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, in terms of uh, off the field stuff, there's, you know, obviously there's no on field stuff right now for Oregon. Um, spring practice starts up next month pretty quickly here, right? Uh, is it pretty early in March? I can never remember. Yeah, I want to say it's, um, let me look at the calendar real quick. I think it's probably, maybe it's the 14th that it starts on, or maybe it's the end of that week, like the 10th uh something like that i think it's it's early in march though either second or third week how about this the full schedule is somewhere on scoop duck i can guarantee you that (laughs) that's Um, there is a thread about it um and speaking of scoop duck which of course we both write for uh you know we always got cool stuff coming up on the site jay hops posting a bunch of his recruiting updates so in lieu of a lot of you know a heavy recruiting news episode from us uh go get your content there because we would basically just end up parroting what he says anyways. So <laughs> go check that out as always. Uh, Jared Denny and I and Jacob Archer have been working through the basketball games. Somehow I keep getting stuck with the worst basketball games. Like I had to do the Arizona State one. Um, well, not had to. I, I volunteered to do it. Uh, and the Cal game. That's like two of the worst games yeah. in recent memory for Oregon that, that I both had to work, which really sucked. But do you get to watch any of the basketball games or are they up? Or is that too late for you? Yeah, no, no. I tuned into the I tuned into the Arizona game uh, and then the women's game with Stanford. It's kind of like seeing the same movie twice, sadly. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm definitely. I mean, I'm would like to consider myself a pretty in-depth football fan, and I definitely don't rival that in terms of my basketball following. But I, yeah, especially as it trends towards tournament time, I try to watch more of the games. Uh, and hopefully they find a way into the tournament this year. That seems like the big question right now, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if they if they somehow convincingly beat like these ne- these two LA schools, or basically like convincingly win out at this point, right? I think they got a shot, but I don't know. It's it's looking real tough right now. Um, yeah. speaking of postseason tournament formats in college sports, we will get to some playoff talk a little bit later. Obviously, there was some news about that this week. Uh, we wanted to open today's show, though, um, 
talking about an article that came out recently. This one was from ESPN. So uh, both Kyle Bonagira and then Adam Rittenberg helped him on this one. Put out kind of a major just sort of general article about Oregon and Dan Lanning and, you know, the same story you've heard a hundred times by now. So we're not going to rehash everything that was said there because, again, you, you know what it's about already. You know, Oregon trying to find its identity, all that kind of stuff. There were a couple interesting nuggets, though. Um, Reed, what, what stood out to you the most about this article and what kind of new information should we be gleaning from it? Uh, well, in general, I just thought it was cool that ESPN put out an article that was pretty accurate uh, about Oregon football. That doesn't happen like a ton. Mm -hmm. Uh, and specifically something like this coaching search that people had a lot of questions about. And I think there was a lot of misinformation about nationally kind of and where the Oregon fan base and players were at with it. Um, and so I thought it was a good article. Uh, it was also free. It wasn't behind the ESPN Plus paywall, so that was nice as well. Um, in terms of the hardcore information we got, I mean, the biggest nugget definitely was uh, the discussion of – kind of the behind the scenes negotiations with Wilcox uh, and this idea that Oregon was pressuring him to surround himself with some more high level recruiters, uh, a better offensive coordinator than Musgrave. Um, and that Wilcox kind of bristled at those demands from Oregon and felt like he couldn't run the program that he wanted to was I think what the article, how the article put it. Um, and, and they kind of went into one thing I didn't like, or they, they quoted someone I think at, who was just a source close to Wilcox that was saying mm -hmm. that Oregon wanted him to deal in like the gray areas of college football was how they put it. Uh, yeah. and they said, Wilcox doesn't want to recruit people who, who are interested in the Ferrari le leather seats in our, uh, film room and stuff. That part of it was kind of like, okay, I mean. You know, the gray area of college football is just what any program that does well deals in. And with NIL now, it's a lot less gray than it used to be. And then also, I mean, I think that it's important to like, I always like to say when people talk about the gray area of college football, they make it seem so like bad. We're not like killing babies here. It's about like <laughs> getting money to people, to unpaid college athletes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's never been something that's like, that immoral uh it hasn't followed the rules always which if you're a stickler for that sort of thing i i get it but um but it's not like there's a lot more immoral things than that happen than the quote-unquote gray areas of recruiting i guess i would say yeah exactly i mean wilcox wilcox's source or again not his source i guess but somebody close to him saying that the direct quote I'm reading right now is it seemed like they wanted him to work in the gray area. And that's really not him. Um, <laughs> like you said, man, this, there seems to be some like misconception among certain fan bases about like how college football works. Right. A lot of people just eat up the, I won't call it BS, but you know, they eat up whatever is told to them from the university, you know, They'll listen to like a Rob Mosley, for example, at Oregon and just take it as canon. Um, you know, yeah. here's the reason why this guy committed. Here's the reason why this guy, all this stuff. Um, you know, they will do whatever it takes to, you know, kind of defend this. 
uh, idea of sanctity surrounding their football program. Um, Pac-12 programs do this more than others. Obviously, you've got the likes of Cal and Stanford who love to follow the rules. Um, and then, you know, Washington fans will say whatever they need to say and stuff like that. Uh, you know, certain UCLA fans, like, they, they don't like the idea of paying recruits and stuff like this. Paying recruits is legal. Yeah. Now, it's completely legal. Um, so there's really no... And it's funny who you see griping about this because it's the people who, it's the people who are fans of programs that probably weren't doing anything wrong in the first place, or if they were, like, it it just wasn't as obvious on the field. Yeah. Um, I I also the I, most talented players have always been lured extraneously. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely true. But I also feel like. I mean, just especially on the West Coast, the whole attitude around recruiting sometimes, and I just have to like say to some of these fan bases, like at the end of the day, why Cristobal had success recruiting at Oregon was because he worked his ass off. And like, there's no honor in your coach spending the time that Cristobal spent recruiting and building relationships with players your coach spending that time on the golf course or whatever when he's like a multi-million dollar employee of the state like yeah it's like the they try to make it all this whole moral thing and it's like ultimately before Cristobal came to Oregon the all the coaches out west were just lazy in recruiting that's just like the fact of the matter they didn't put as much time into it uh, and they were the reason why they didn't like him at first. And the reason why in 2019, Oregon didn't get players on the all conference team was because Cristobal came in and said, yeah, you're actually going to have to work for those millions of dollars you get in terms of the off season as well in recruiting. And you're going to have to add, you know, X amount more hours to your work week. Uh, for those extra six months of the year when you're not in practice or in the game. So, I don't know. It's just, like, there, there's so many dimensions to the recruiting game. But also, like, again, like you said, I mean, paying players is not, like, is not. it's not like Oregon. I, I mean, we're, we don't even know. We're speculating in terms of, you know, to what degree Oregon did or did not do it with whichever player. But... It has existed in the sport for a long, long time. We know that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I don't want to. Um, <laughs> here's what we aren't saying. We are not saying that that Oregon cheats or has cheated or anything. I personally don't I don't have any sources. I don't know of any of that. I have zero evidence uh, pertaining to that. But if you look around the country at how the best programs well, build themselves up to be the best programs, it's not that difficult to figure out. Um, it's whoever gets the best talent and it helps by being in talent rich areas like the South um, or LA for that matter. Right. And it helps when, you know, obviously you got to keep those kids home. Um, and then from there you have to use that to build a competent program. You know, we, we've also seen plenty of examples of people not getting enough talent and then a program collapse or getting enough talent, but then they don't put it together on the field and everything collapses. You know, see places like Tennessee or whatever. Um, Texas is probably the, the perfect example for that. Or even USC recently. 
But so I want to tie a, a ribbon on this Wilcox thing by just saying what I got out of this article and this new information was kind of just a confirmation of what we already thought, right? Yeah. Oregon put a lot of, they were very clear that there were going to be a lot of restrictions upon Wilcox when he came to Oregon. They wanted him to still keep Oregon at that elite level, again, by getting elite talent. Um, and that's not really his game. He's more of a quote-unquote purist football coach. I'm not quoting anyone there. That's, you know, just how a lot of people think of it. And yeah. I'm totally okay with that. I understand why some people might think he was the right guy if he could fit into an Oregon system that Mario had already gotten rolling. Um, but ultimately, I'm much happier with Lanning. That's yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in that article. Um, and they talk about that kind of tension between Oregon being built, and especially like people think of the Chip Kelly era. I mean, that's what everyone goes to. Of course, we know like the the history of Oregon's rise is a little more complex than that, but people point to that era and they say, okay, Oregon out-strategized everyone, you know, from 2009 to 2015. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's why they were good, even though they had less talent. Uh, and now they kind of talked about how there's like some th that that philosophy is changing once you get a taste of what we did under Cristobal, which is you don't have to keep innovating constantly just to stay afloat. You know, you don't always have to be on the very cutting edge. If you collect enough talent, so you can have those games where you just lean on people and win, at least in theory. Um, so that was interesting. Also much more sustainable model exactly. to build it talent-wise. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing that was that kind of put it in perspective to me too was there's one quote from Akili Smith that was pretty good um, where he was just talking about Wilcox and he basically said like, I lined up with this guy. He's my brother. I went to battle with him. So like, of course, I'm always going to vote for him to run the program. And that kind of was interesting to me because it was just, it kind of put it in perspective like, Okay, well, it's cool that Akili thinks that, but also I don't care about that opinion as much now because it just kind of reveals to me that there's a bond there where it's like, you know, that's his brother that he wants to have a chance to run the program. And it's very tough for him to be objective when he has mm -hmm. that connection with him, kind of. So that was Yeah, and I mean, too. it's also on the other side of that, like it's easy for people like me and you to sit here and like disregard everything Akili says, not that, I mean, we're doing the opposite of that right now, but <laughs> in general, it, I can see why it's easy for fans, especially younger ones like us who never saw, you know, we weren't alive when Akili was playing right. for Oregon. It's easy for us to just kind of disregard that and say, look, you obviously don't understand like how these elite programs are built and you're kind of just advocating for this alumni system rather than a death star. You always want to be the Death Star. It's it's very hard to blow up the Death Star. Um, <laughs> and again, like Chip's offensive mind was amazing. The fact that we built this program without getting elite talent is probably the biggest like program. We're probably the the biggest anomaly program wise in terms of like elite top twenty fifteen programs in college football, yeah. just because of that. Yeah. Um, it's very odd. You know, we, Oregon doesn't have a ton of in-state talent, all that stuff. You know what I'm talking about already. Um, but 
in in terms of getting down to business, again, I am glad that Oregon went with Landing. I am glad that Wilcox isn't the guy. Um, I we still don't have clarity about the Native Son T-shirts or whatever that Cruzano <laughs> was talking about, but I think that's just something that's going to live in the back of my mind for a while. That's all. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but so speaking of getting down to business, like you can't take a soft approach to football within your program. Uh, or on the field, and you certainly can't take a soft approach when you're running a conference. George Klyavkov had an interesting, a few interesting things to say with John Wilner um, of the Mercury News, of course, kind of your number one source for Pac-12 stuff. Very recently about talking a little bit about expansion, the alliance, all this stuff. Um, let's just kind of start at the top here. Like the ultimate plan that Klyavkov seemed to have wanted and a lot of a lot of Pac-12 fans wanted was to scrap the ninth conference game which every team currently plays we've talked about this enough we can see how much damage it does to a team mm, right. um just having that one extra game you know he obviously wanted to swap that out for a game against another alliance member seems logical right since mm-hmm. you might be able to get even better ratings definitely probably get better ratings than a regular Pac-12 game. So, you know, your ESPNs and Foxes should be happy ratings-wise. Um, but then it also pertains to playoff implications because, again, we've seen Oregon 2019, again, is the obvious example. You know, if it wasn't for that ninth conference game against ASU, we're probably in the playoff that year, for better or worse. Well, actually, it'd be for better even because that's the only way you get revenue. It's another thing Wilner's article talked about a lot was the revenue discrepancies between conferences. They're bigger than you might think. Um, Reed, where do you fall on this? Like, would you rather have an Alliance game than a ninth conference game? Is there any reason why that ninth conference game should be there instead? Where do you fall on this? Uh, I definitely think you want to get rid of the ninth conference game. Uh, I just don't think it's respected very much right now. Um, and so I think you're just kind of making yourself a harder schedule for little reward. Um, I mean, I guess it wouldn't necessarily be harder if you replaced it with another Alliance game, but um, I definitely... Am, but it would mean more. It, it would mean more, exactly. And I think there's honestly a, another facet of this that some people don't talk about is I think that having that other alliance game and having another data point between Power 5 conferences or a lot more data points if you look at all those games combined, right, um, Mm -hmm. actually could do a lot to make the playoff more fair and just give us more data about which teams actually deserve to be in. Uh, Some people are interested in expansion and guaranteeing spots for conference champs, and we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, in a second, and and we've cor- of course talked about it before, um, but honestly, I I just I think it's a good idea because the data sample in college football is so small. You only have the twelve games in a season, a thirteenth conference championship game, and so um, I think it's really valuable to just have another chance to compare these Power Five conferences and see how they stack up on the field. You look at like what Oregon's win over Ohio State did for the conference. That was awesome, mm-hmm. um, and just getting a chance to prove it. Like it, it's so frustrating sometimes when you just haven't gotten a chance to play these teams from the other conference, especially like during the COVID season. Didn't end up mattering. Obviously, the Pac-12 didn't really have a team that was very close to 
being in playoff contention. Um, but I remember going into that season and just being like, how are we possibly going to make sense of how these conferences stack up when literally no one is playing non-conference yeah. games between each other? So I'm in, yeah. I'm a, in huge favor of more Power 5 cross-conference games. Uh, I just think they're always really interesting, and you just learn a lot from them. Like, I, the ratings will be higher. It makes sense for everyone in my mind. Yeah, me too. I also think it's something I grabbed out of this interview more generally was that George Klyavkov is really just kind of – his cards are on the table face up. Like, he doesn't care. He's letting everyone yeah. see his hand. And you know what? I'm honestly okay with it. After dealing what we dealt with with Larry Scott – or, you know, just the absolute lack of competence from him. Larry Scott would not be, ha- he would not have a plan right now if he were mm-hmm. still commissioner. He would be completely in the dark with regards to how he's going to go about navigating expansion, how he's playoff expansion, or potentially. Uh, how, he, you know, Klyavkov made, pulled the alliance together within the, his first few months on the job, you know? Yeah. Um, and he's already dealt with like some awful, awful results on the field. Again, out of his control. What can you do? But Larry Scott, I just know, would not have a competent plan for any of this. And it's refreshing to know that um, Klavkov does, and that you know he has at least some sort of vision uh, as to what this might be to make the conference better. Now, I am a little bit concerned because, again, if we have all the cards on the table here, like. The Big Ten very obviously said that their ninth conference game, what their ninth conference game was more valuable than an alliance game between somebody else from the mm-hmm. ACC or the Pac-12. That's not great news uh, for the Pac-12 because again, obviously you avoid um, another game with the Big Ten, which, sure on paper, you know you line up the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. Pretty sure the Big Ten wins most of those matchups if you're matching them up fairly, but. It's all about exposure. It's all about taking chances. It's all about UCLA beating LSU last year. Uh, it's all about, you know, Washington playing against Michigan and us playing against Ohio State. Those sort of data points, at the end of the day, they stack up to more money. Um, and, you know, while Pac-12 programs are not at the same level as some of these other Big Ten ones, you got to take chances at some point, right? Yeah. Like, we are counting on the UCLA's and USC's of this conference to like step up and make their own programs better internally. But none of that mat like even if they do improve themselves, it doesn't matter unless they win big games on the field. Um, so even though I'm not sure it would like help the Pac-12 on paper win loss wise, I think it would definitely help bank statements, and that's that's what really matters. Um, <laughs> again, well, we already well, talked about why yeah. that does when you're building a I mean building hope- a program, but. hopefully down the road if it helps the bank statements then it will eventually help the win-loss records right but exactly yeah 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 but i mean also like i i look at it just as a fan of the sport i think that having those cross-conference alliance games would be really valuable and interesting you know would it help the Mm pac-12 probably in a lot of cases not at least not right now i mean the pac-12 didn't really need another chance to expose its incompetence this past year, right? Like that that wouldn't have really helped that much. They were already losing games to FCS teams. Um yeah. but it you know, 
I think it's just good in general. I think it rewards the conferences and the teams who are doing better and makes it more clear who is deserving of a spot in a playoff or this bowl game or whatever it is. Uh, and finding a way to do that within the confines of still keeping the games at 12 uh, so that we don't put you know student athletes in too many games, um, especially regular season games and all that, like... Mm-hmm. is is a good thing i think for the sport in general yeah and i mean we obviously have slightly different views upon you know what expansion what type of expansion is better or worse than another but as of right now it looks like we won't be expanding at least until what did they delay it till 2025 or something or was it 23 i can't remember uh, um, i think it's i think it's 26 or 27 even oh geez Either way, we're staying at four for quite a while, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, straight up, does – I? well, okay, I was about to ask, does this help or hurt the Pac-12? Like, is this a net good or bad for the Pac-12? I think really the answer we're going to come to ultimately is that, on, you know, the only thing that can help the Pac-12 succeed is itself. You know, at the end of the day, you have to do your homework, right? Mm-hmm. You can't, like – you cannot just skate through, you know, that essay is sure. I can find so many excuses to procrastinate this essay, but I still have to write it at the end of the week. Right. Like the Pac-12 individually, its programs has to get their shit together or else nothing good is going to happen. Period. Um, no, I think overall net negative. I think that's a good metaphor though. Like you look in school, it's like you, you have this book assignment and you didn't read a single page of the book. You don't know anything it's on. And your teacher asks you, oh, do you want to write a paper on it or do you want to test? It's like, who cares? You're going to fail. Like, um, The substance just like isn't there right now for the Pac-12 at all. Um, mm-hmm. So it almost doesn't matter. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, it probably helps dollars at the end of the day for there to be a locked-in spot for the Pac-12. Uh, and that's, you know, personally, our, we had a, we got a question on this from, from Dalton, uh, who said he's from Southern Indiana, by the way. So shout out to him for listening from across yeah. the country. Um, and he was asking about Oregon, uh, whether playoff expansion would help Oregon or not. And I think, you know, that also extends to the PAC 12. Um, yeah, you know, getting a, having a guaranteed spot would help the PAC 12, uh, that's not why I, I personally don't want expansion. Why I don't want expansion is because, well, one, I think it makes the regular season less valuable and we can we don't have to go into this. But also, like, I just don't think the Pac-12 deserves a better shot is my point. Like, mm-hmm. I just don't, I don't think that the Pac-12 has had a team that's deserved to be in a playoff um, since, you know, you could say 2019 Oregon could have, you know, gotten a shot and I don't think they would have been out of place necessarily. I don't think they would have beaten LSU or anything, but I don't think they would have been out of place among the people who ended up getting in. Um, but ultimately, I mean, they dropped games that they shouldn't have. And I was fine with that team going to a Rose bowl. And I was happy with 2019 Oregon winning a Rose bowl and proud of that. And like, that was a successful season, even though we didn't make it to a playoffs in my mind. Um, so I like the idea of just having less focus on the playoffs in general. I know that's something Josh Pate talks about a lot is, is 
the unfortunate reality is a playoff is linked with ESPN, who owns the TV rights to it. So mm-hmm. they're kind of the main mouthpiece of the sport. They have game day, and they feed into this narrative that the playoffs all is all that matters. They run the who's in commercial in September, and that's what everyone's thinking about. Uh, and personally for me, I want to go back to the days when like a Rose Bowl mattered, all these power five, all these New Year's Six Bowls, I mean, mattered. Um, so that's, I don't know if we can ever get back to there, uh, honestly. So I'm interested to see how it changes, but ultimately, I don't know, does it help or not? Again, I keep going back to like, no amount, nothing's going to save us that the NCAA does from the fact that the Mm PAC 12 just isn't, doesn't have good football programs right now. The product isn't good. Um, And I think hopefully down the line, we'll talk, we'll do an episode kind of breaking down the situation of each of these PAC 12 teams a little more going into next season. There's some hope, you know, I mean, Lincoln Riley coming in at USC is good for the conference. Uh, The landing move we've talked about a lot. I like it overall for Oregon. Um, Arizona seems to be trending in a good direction. Utah, you know, had a breakthrough season last year and looks like they can stay around that level for another year or two, and we'll see how that goes. But, I mean, it's about getting good coaches, keeping good quarterbacks on the West Coast, like just improving the product before it's about, you know, oh, toss us this free playoff bid so we can get slaughtered by 30 at the end of the year. Like, I would rather see Utah... I mean, I don't know what Utah would have done in that setting, but I enjoyed seeing Utah have a competitive game with a flawed Ohio State team versus being matched up against, you know, uh, a Georgia or something. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, and we'll see how they do in that big non-conference game against Florida. But I I couldn't tell if that was an intentional transition into Jaden Daniels talking about when you talk about quarterbacks, but it wasn't, but that works. That definitely works. (laughs) We do need to address the transfer portal. This is exactly what we're talking about, by the way, when we say that the PAC 12 programs don't get out of their own ways, everything happening at ASU right now is self-inflicted. Yeah. Completely self-inflicted. It's not because of the playoff committee. It's not because of the Alliance or because the big 10 doesn't want to play an extra game. Uh, It's because Herm Edwards is bad at running a football program. And he seems to somehow have emerged from this dumpster fire unburnt. Whereas he pretty much threw, here's what it looks like right now. Sorry, let me back up. Let me back up. For those unfamiliar with the ASU situation, they are in deep, deep trouble for hosting recruits during COVID. uh, The first time it was a big deal in 2020. Edwards, uh, Herm Edwards, ASU's head coach, has emerged from this again unscathed he is not receiving any sanctions or anything uh asu's president or ad crow i I can't remember if he's president or ad the guy who's in charge of herm edwards seems to think that he is totally fine and that he is totally innocent in this pretty much all of herm's assistants from that team are now gone because they allegedly took part in these recruiting violations so it's either the case that herm edwards is lying which is probably what's happening uh, and that he knew exactly what was happening and that he probably told people to engage in these activities 
or he had absolutely zero grasp on his own football program, which again is not a good, that's, that's, that's a really tough cop out to put yourself in. Um, and now ASU's best player, Jaden Daniels, um, despite what some of his teammates say, he is a good quarterback uh, and he is, you know, Spencer Rattler was not pursued by ASU because they already had Jaden Daniels. Well, now you don't get either of them. Daniels is gone. He's in the transfer portal. We don't know where he's going to land, but he's not at ASU anymore. And judging by a video that was released by some other ASU players, they like were just throwing his shit out of his locker, like being super disrespectful to him, saying he's trash, all this stuff. It's like, what kind of culture are you building here, Herm? Like, I don't understand how anyone with any semblance of college football knowledge can look at this situation and say, oh, yeah, Herm should still be the coach. Yeah, uh, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> and it's just incompetence down the line, too. I mean, Arizona State is by far the most stark example of it in the Pac-12, but so many places just, like, literally, you know, I mean, to go back to we talked about it at the top of the show, too, but, like, literally so many West Coast programs just complain about anyone recruiting at any sort of serious level. And it's like the entire secret of talent acquisition. Only Oregon and USC fully understand it. And Arizona now is trying to and has been doing kind of well. But like there's just so many excuses from everyone. Like, uh, I mean, even like Utah, I've been thinking about recently. And, and, you know, shout out to them for doing what they did this season. And they kicked Oregon's ass twice. So, I mean, they definitely deserve credit for that. But I talk to Utah fans sometimes and they just say like, oh, well, we can't get anyone. We're Utah. And it's like, where where are the Sewells from? Where is Jeffrey yeah. Bossa from? Like, Oregon has been putting in work in Utah. Like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. I get that Utah might not pull from, you know, LA. They, I get that they can't sign Kayvon Thibodeau, right? But like... yeah lock down your own state at least like y'all have had a successful program for a while you can't just like throw your hands up and say we're utah anymore you're part of the power five you've been that way for 10 years you should have a strong brand in state like you when there are top 150 players or even top 50 players in your state you should really um be in in the running for them seriously and get (laughs) them um, and you know, that's, that's starting to change, uh, a little bit for them. Um, so I, I appreciate, you know, in that regard, um, that, that hopefully that is something that will change. Uh, but it's just like, there can't be excuses anymore. I I'm sure Lander Barton was a guy that they got this class who was, uh, top 100 guy from Utah. So that's a really good start. And he's a top, you know, he's a good player. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like, let's repeat that. When there's a, you know, when there's a top 150 player from Utah, and I say this, you know, as an Oregon fan who would obviously, we'd rather have him at Oregon, but it's like, y'all have got to be in the mix, at least be like a serious hat on the table for these guys. Um Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It all comes back to recruiting, man. And it also all comes back to investment. Those things obviously go hand in hand. Like, how long do you think it's going to take ASU to recover from this Herm thing? 
Like there's there's no I see no possible way of this working out and any smart person who pays attention to football sees no scenario where this works out for Herm. It's going to take at least like five years to rebuild this program, right? And long, I mean, longer each day that they keep him on staff. Yes, yes. It's embarrassing. And like, yeah, sure. This like, I want to clear something up too. Like this overreactionary, just kind of stupid program wide stuff. It happens at other schools. It happens in the South. It happened at LSU this past year. Guess how long it took them to turn things around yeah one off season right (laughs) Right? and even then they still posted the number 12th ranked (laughs) 2022 class in the entire country um like investment matters buy-in matters not just from your fan base but just from your boosters from your alumni like from your money is what i'm getting at um yeah and sure you can have situations like auburn where you know, the, the money gets too involved. I think that's the best example of boosters being too involved and like overly protective of their own asses, I guess, within that program. But my point is you need money to bounce back unless you strike gold with like a Chip Kelly type mind uh, coaching wise. Like you need money to recover from these things. And again, every day, every year that the Pac-12 misses out on the playoff, that's more money going to every other program in every other conference in the country. Um, So point being, yes, Utah, get your recruiting stuff together. Arizona State, get everything together. Fire everyone you need to fire, but clean house and (laughs) turn things around. Um, Another program that might be facing similar problems, uh, UCLA. Do you, do you maybe want to touch on how those things are similar and, and what you, UCLA is dealing with right now? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we're well aware of the Chip Kelly experience in terms of recruiting. <laughs> uh, and sadly, the on-field experience isn't quite what it was at Oregon uh, for UCLA now. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, where to begin with UCLA? They're, I mean, they're the same way. It's just like, except, you know, I talk about like Utah, but it's like UCLA, you're in LA. Like the reason that we all talk about USC's massive recruiting advantage and everything is because like the the program that's supposed to share their footprint with them is asleep at the wheel. Like, yeah. It, yeah. Um, they both have been for years. Like, it's not like UCLA. Yeah, like, sure, UCLA is little brother, little brother to USC. But if every Pac-12 program reached their highest potential, UCLA is number two. Yeah. Behind USC. Like, just by virtue of, again, being in LA. You play, in the, you play your home games in the Rose Bowl. Right. And they've somehow found a way to turn that to a disadvantage, it feels like, almost. <laughs> Honestly, man, it's embarrassing. Like, yeah. Oh. Well, so, so what I was getting at here is, yeah, Mitchell Agude, um, yeah, edge player, right? Is he an yeah. edge player? Defensive lineman of some sort from UCLA. Their best defensive player, as I understand it, um, is out. He's got a top four that includes Oregon, so that that's worth mentioning. We'll get into that in a second. Um, they also lose their best receiver, Chase Coda, to Oregon. Um, these are the type of things like this is what we're talking about when we when we claim incompetence across the Pac-12. Like 
this should be one of your premier programs and it's losing talent left and right. Um, I'm assuming it's because like, like the easy answer is just to say Chip Kelly doesn't know how to run a program or like he doesn't know how to manage a roster. It's what my guy Carlos on no truck stop says all the time. Like, I don't yeah. know this. I can't get more specific than that because I don't pay attention to UCLA. But, like, it's a terrible look for the conference, and it's an even worse look for your program. Like, just take the easy steps for once. Don't make it harder on yourselves. Um, right, and yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll stop ranting. Well, yeah, but the thing with UCLA, too, is it's like they've had DTR, who I know it's kind of he's kind of a meme, but he's actually, like, a pretty good quarterback. Um, yeah. And to just have that time wasted when they should be the ones kind of breaking through and making runs at the South if they have, you know, they have this chip there that's like, uh, or I guess chip, you know, is an ironic word given the coach. But this guy, at, <laughs> this guy at quarterback that's the most important position on the field and you have someone solid there who you can win with. And it's like, just build around that and, and you should be competing in the South and competing for the conference even with, you know, what we saw from Oregon these past two years being a little shaky at least. Um, yeah, yeah, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, we can get into the Coda pickup for Oregon if, if you don't have anything else to say on that. Uh, let, let's vet Agude first real quick. Um, yeah. This dude's a beast. Uh, UCLA's leading tackler, I believe, if not like just be- best overall player um, within that defense. Position of need for Oregon, definitely. We've talked about this a little bit, right? Edge or that kind of edge slash outside linebacker spot is is where Oregon is most thin. It's it's no surprise at this point. We haven't had to think of it that way for about three years because Kayvon Thibodeau has been here. Um but we're looking at Mace Funa and Braden Swinson as our starting edge guys right now um, with mm. Adrian Jackson and, like, Jake Shipley kind of being the, the guys right behind them. Um, and, and obviously, you know, in an ideal world, all those guys would improve. But, yeah. And notably, too, I know you post this on Twitter, but um, DJ Johnson's number change hinted at us that he's moving back to the defensive side right. of the ball, too, because now he shares number two with uh Dante Thornton I think so um that's a big one too Mm -hmm. I can't sleep on that because honestly I mean if you just look at the raw physical gifts that these guys have DJ Johnson probably is uh at the top of the list yeah but I mean even then kind of my point being I'm I'm glad you brought that up uh you take a guy like Agude if you can get him uh this is a a seasoned player who, you know, he has the experience, he has the skills, like he has the physical package too. You put it all together and this is a guy who would be a borderline starter, I think, at Oregon. Um, Again, at a position of need. So while we may have the bodies, a lot of these guys are just not, they're not there yet. Um, And we'll see how that might change this off season. But I also, (sighs) what's his talk? Go ahead. I also think that we've seen that Lanning really wants some more bodies in this front seven on the defensive side. Like we saw that yes. at Georgia last year. He rotates dudes. And so 
not only like like it's not a situation where we just need seven guys to fill the front seven you know like it's going to be mm-hmm. closer to 15 probably uh who see oh, pretty least, regular yeah. playing time at least or you know some somewhere around that number you were asking what his top four is yeah yeah i believe it's like tennessee oregon washington uh, and miami right okay yeah well, hey, there's another interesting land of landing versus uh, Cristobal data point, perhaps. Right. So we'll right. see what happens there. Um, obviously, that's a body Oregon would take, uh, even though we are currently with the Chase Coda trans- tra- incoming transfer being confirmed. Um, three scholarships over the limit by my count and by Core Patty's count on Scoop Duck. So that makes three spots that. Yeah. we're overflowing with already so unfortunately you know it's always tough to see three guys leave the program but when you can cycle them out for better talent you know it's it's going to create a better football team yeah i mean i think i think that we'll see what happens with a good day and the end of it uh and it's we no one really knows exactly who's leading in this thing right now um but uh, I think it's definitely a guy who would help Oregon a lot. Uh, will it end up being a take? How hard will they push for him with other guys? I don't, I don't know that completely, given you know the fact that they're over spots is the big thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. So we'll see how that shakes out. But yeah, uh, it's definitely something to watch for sure, and he would be an impact guy immediately. Um, do you want to move on to Dakota finally? I mean, we've talked for yeah. a while here, and we haven't even mentioned that Oregon has a new player. Um, <laughs> yeah, honestly. Yeah, speaking of impact guys that you know can make a difference as soon as they step foot on campus, and also speaking of UCLA transfers, uh, Chase Coda, Oregon native. I believe he went to South Medford, racked up a bunch of yards there in high school. Son of Ch- uh, Chad Coda. Sorry, his name is Chase. Um, who obviously had a really interesting, really interesting, really good career at Oregon as a defensive back, especially on that 94 team that went to the Rose Bowl. So what does this mean for Oregon? Why is this guy a take? Yeah, I mean, the first thing you have to do is you just pull up the scholarship chart at receiver and you see Oregon's going to need a body somewhere. Um, I mean, losses of four huge contributors from last year. Obviously, Micah Pittman, the in-season transfer. Then you have Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red leave. And then you also have Devin Williams go to the draft early. Um, and so those are a lot of carries or a lot of catches that you lose. Um, a lot of touches, I guess I should say. Uh, and then Will Hoyt also gone, who didn't seem to factor into plans as much. But yeah, it, it, you just needed another guy in this room and Coda made a lot of sense. It seemed like it was trending this way for a while. Obviously the in-state connection, the family connection to Oregon football specifically. Um, and, you know, it kind of fits just what the Ducks need in terms of a guy who's a little more experienced. They've got a lot of young talent in the room, um, but you get a guy who's a little more experienced has been in a power five program, has been a contributor. He's not been a wide receiver one. I mean, you put up, you pull up his stats, it, they don't blow you away. Um, mm-hmm. He's had, you know, he, he played 11 games in 2019, his sophomore year. Then it was the COVID year. And I think he got a little banged up that year as well as this year and played five and seven games respectively. Um, and, you know, has totaled 
no totaled 350 yards his sophomore year, and that's his highest yardage count. So this isn't a this isn't a complete game breaker. Um, you know, it doesn't change everything, but it is a spot where Oregon needed a guy, and they went out and got a guy who's a Power Five experienced receiver, and also guys you know you think. Um, he sees a lot of value in just coming to Oregon and playing and playing at home and helping this program. You know, it seems like he's probably in it for some more reasons than just let me come help, you know, further my stats for a year or whatever. Let me come be the guy Mm -hmm. and they're going to build this offense all around me and I'm going to be a superstar or something. You know, he's got some incentive and investment in this program uh, and ties to it that I think hint at the fact that he's just going to be a good contributor uh, to that room. Mm -hmm. I mean, competent Pac-12 starter, to say the least. Uh, We've seen Oregon poach other Pac-12 starters this cycle, most notably Taki Taimani, um, but also Christian Gonzalez from Colorado, both on the defensive side. You mentioned the wide receiver room. This brings us up to eight bodies in the wide receiver room by my current count. Uh, Obviously, Franklin and Thornton are the two big ones that will definitely be starting on the outside, considering what we've seen from them already and their talent level coming in. Uh, You Mm -hmm. also got Chris Hudson. He, you know, we assume he he starts in the slot. Those are kind of your three basic starters. Uh, And then Isaiah Brevard behind him. You got... You know, so that's number four, Isaiah Crocker, Josh Delgado, 5'6". Then you have Justice Lowe and now Chase Cota, the two new guys coming in. That's a full wide receiver room at that point, eight bodies. Um, yeah. But as you mentioned, I mean, losing four guys and then also Lance Wilhoyt, we don't know where he's going to end up. Um, that's five bodies that you're losing in, in the room. Um, so this right. is cer- certainly one of the best ways you could have possibly made up the numbers. Um, obviously getting a guy like Jermaine Burton from Georgia would have been nice, but I'm not yeah. complaining with Chase Coda. Again, he's a competent Pac-12 starter. If you can bring in a competent Pac-12 starter to your elite Pac-12 roster um, at a position where you're already thin, just numbers-wise, amazing. Take it. That's, right. that's going to be the best backup you get. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, if you could have gotten T-Mac and Jermaine Burton, maybe that would have been the best Ooh. possible uh finish but i think oregon's pretty happy with where they are at especially uh with having franklin and thornton guys who you just want to give touches to you know like everyone's dying to see those guys you don't you don't really need to recruit or you know bring in a transfer over them at all like you they're guys you're looking for a chance to get the ball in their hands um yeah yeah, all right. I, th- I think that pretty much covers kind of the uh, to-do list in terms of, you know, stuff that's happened since our last one. It took a while, um, but I think it was yeah. a lot of good stuff. You want to move into kind of uh, more of this big picture conversation that we were thinking about having? Please. Okay, so I can I can prep this thing as kind of, um, I and mean, it's something we both wanted to do, but I, something I kind of especially did. Uh, given the fact that, you know, we're in February, it's a dead month, um, both, you know, just in terms of the recruiting calendar, but also no spring practice. Everything's a bit more low-key. People shift their attention to basketball for a little bit. Um, and so 
I think it's an interesting time to kind of just reflect on like Oregon went through a huge change in the past two and a half months here. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely gigantic, right? I mean, there aren't that many coaching changes that have happened in our lifetime or in most of the lifetime of the people who are listening to this. If you think back to how long Rich Brooks was here and then how long Bilotti was here. Um, I know it's been a little more recent in the 2010s, I guess, but like it's a big thing when you when you move on leadership and especially when you overhaul an entire staff that hasn't happened uh, really only once since Rich Brooks took over, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the transition from Helfrich to Taggart is the only time we've seen this kind of clean house uh, yep. in the same way. So, yeah, so I just kind of wanted to go back over, like, what do we think about this thing now that we have a bit more perspective, uh, and particularly now that we're out of kind of what was these first two months of go, go, go for, you know, the people that are actually involved in the program, but a lot of anxiety from the fans as well in terms of, you know, it was first, okay, hire a coach. We have early signing period a week away. Um, and then it's like, who is possibly going to coach in our bowl game? Who sticks around? Where are these people going? Are they here for a long time? And it, mm-hmm. and it was pushing to hire a staff. We were all rooting for Georgia in the playoff. Um, but yeah, kind of first take stock of, you know, what these past two months have been. And I look at the goals of, kind of that two month immediate goals for the landing tenure was first thing was hire a staff. You know, that's the thing that has a long-term impact. Uh, and I feel good about that. We've talked about the staff throughout. Uh, I think most people know the deal, but I, I feel really good about how that staff ended up. Um, the other thing was, you know, right into recruiting. First off, it was going to the 2022 class and that was salvaged really well also. Uh, look, it didn't end up a top 10 class. Oregon didn't, you know, get another award of best class they've ever had or anything like that, but they got the pieces that they needed one. And with the scholarship levels they have, this was really all that they could take ultimately without more significant departures. And once a new coach comes in, he kind of doesn't have that same authority to push guys out in the same way. So I felt really good about the staff about the 2022 class and about the early stuff that has been set up in 2023 as well. Um, But I think that one thing that we also have to admit that maybe, uh, you know, it didn't go horribly, but that was a real hit that Oregon took was some of the losses that, you know, the exodus from this roster, it didn't all fall apart. But there are a few big ones looking back at what happened during this time and kind of trying to hold that roster together. Didn't go perfectly at the end of the day, right? I mean, Travis died to USC is the big one. That one hurts double because he goes to your, you know, biggest competition going forward for conference supremacy, you know, two, three years down the line. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. But even, you know, a lot of those 50-50 decisions that we thought with C.J. Verdell, Devin Williams, Verone McKinley, all of those we kind of talked about on this podcast for a bit about, oh, I could see them staying. Maybe they will. We'll probably have one of Verdell or die. Um, Verone and Devin Williams really could go either way. We hope they might come back. 
and all those guys declared early understandably and good on them no you know no ill will there but that was just the reality of it and those are hits um Mm -hmm. and then you lose a trio of transfers to auburn and robbie ashford at quarterback yeah you have some depth there you have two other really good guys and you bring in a transfer so it's okay but that's a loss dj james big loss he played a ton ton of snaps on this defense jason jones big body that you don't get a ton of that people were excited about that's a big loss trey benson to florida state um something that just didn't materialize off off ultimately it's worth mention you have cardwell that definitely softens the blow there for sure and sean dollars um but worth mentioning as well but i mean ultimately that's eight scholarship guys who were potential contributors for next season like real dudes who would have started or been contributors uh the majority of them at least that aren't going to be coming back yeah at least i mean one two let's see die verdell williams mckinley james jones how many was that six yeah Benson and Ash six guys who were getting he- they were going to get heavy reps this year. Exactly. Exactly. Benson and Ashford are the two that were a little more, you know, down the line they could have, but not next year as much. Um but the reality Still is losses nonetheless, though. Yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. Um But I mean that's a real thing that I think we have to recognize like did happen and should have an effect on how we view next season. Uh, even though there's a lot of optimism about this new staff, about the scheme, about the overhaul of culture, good early returns and all of that. I mean, ultimately, I was looking at the PFF snap counts. The reality is four of the top six snap takers on defense are gone. Verone McKinley, Mikhail Wright, DJ James, and Kayvon, all gone from last year's defense. That's definitely significant. Um, I think that the, you know, something worth mentioning is you get a guy like Gonzo in here, um, Christian Gonzalez from, from Colorado who worked with coach meat there, who is a, you know, starter. We've talked about that before that, that he's capable of filling in some of the reps that we are losing from DJ James, especially, but Mm -hmm. still, I mean, a guy like Verone in this safety room, you're not replacing, you know, Kayvon and Mikhail are going to be tough to get another, you know, it's going to be tough to get a second corner that is at that level right now. You hope that something works out with Triquez or Dante Manning, but I mean, Mikhail's a dude, probably a second day draft pick. Um, and Kayvon is Kayvon, you know, I mean, from a scheme perspective, I think there are some ways to fill that hole in terms of pass rush, but it's just worth mentioning uh, that, you know, we talk, I think we, people are so caught up in recruiting and they didn't kind of watch some of those transfers and NFL decisions holistically and say, like, there are a lot of losses there. Um, what are, what are your, mm-hmm. ta- what's your take on that? And just kind of this, what this immediate rush for these past two months has been first and foremost, like how, how we've done on those immediate goals to kind of stabilize this program after this huge transition. I think the stabilization part of it is definitely 
you, you can definitely check that box right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's always scenarios where things go completely south, but <clears throat> I think not hiring Wilcox and getting landing in, in the door instead um, with all the strengths that he brings and minimal weaknesses, like as close to a perfect escape plan from, from that hellhole of situation that Mullins was put in both by us as fans and by the alumni and by Cristobal. Um, just all this pressure coming from different directions. I'm amazed that he was able to come out of it with such a positive, you know, spin on things. Like, like you said, there's roster problems for sure. But I mean, from a program standpoint, we couldn't ask, we couldn't have asked for a better outcome outcome from all this. Um, I mean, there was a time when we were on that Twitter space when, like, we're like, okay, Cristobal is, like, leaving. He's going to leave, and we are screwed. We see no, like, possible yeah. good way out of this, considering the names that are already off the coaching boards and all this. Like, it's just really going to be tough to find anyone who everyone can completely rally around. And somehow Mullins did that. I mean, yeah. I still haven't really heard any from Oregon fans, at least, or from Oregon people. I don't. I'm not seeing a whole ton of skepticism about landing. Like the biggest criticism I've seen from the outside is that like, sure he's hiring a recruiting staff, not a coaching staff. I mean, yeah, that there's a lot that goes into that, but you know, I, I can understand that take a little bit, but the point is if that's the most dirt you have on somebody, like if that's the biggest problem you see with the hire, like that's not even a bad thing about landing. That's just, you're just talking shit about the people he's hiring. So Ultimately, I, I'm coming out of this as, you know, I, I can't call it a net positive from where we were with Mario because we really had a good thing going here. Um, and that was a sustainable recruiting model for sure that we had with Cristobal. But, and yes, of course, like I'm going to expect a little bit of a step back next year or at least probably like on par with, with what last year was. Um, but our... I feel very, very good about the ceiling with Lanning. I mean, it's easy yeah. to just call it all smoke, but I, I feel very confident about where we're at. Now for the negative parts of things, like on the field next year, I mean, I will be extremely excited to watch the young guys play. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm here for Thornton and Franklin. I'm here for all the Byron Cardwell touches. Yes, I'm here please. for all the, yeah, all the new guys that are coming in, like, I would love to see some some real development so that we can make a run at things next year. Yep. Yep. Amen. Saddam the Blues. Pro- yeah, exactly. Like, it is so, so Im- hard, difficult, damn near impossible to build a championship caliber program in one offseason with all those departures that we already mentioned that mm-hmm. were such major contributors to this team. Um we should be thinking about like, you know, you can set playoffs as an expectation if those guys had stayed and then you bring in more talent and then you bring in an elite, elite coach like landing. Hopefully he's an elite coach. Um, but this season, yeah. I mean, I see people like hating on other duck fans for projecting like nine wins or whatever, like get ready. Cause uh, there's, there's going to be some difficulties. You can't just blame everything on your former head coach, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Jimmy Lake Washington fans can do that, but I, I'm not gonna accept that here. Like Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna be patient. 
that's all I got. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, I think the Washington comparison is interesting in terms of fan attitude. Uh, it's an interesting line to to try to, you know, tight walk here, whatever the expression is. Um, <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, people probably understand what I was trying to say there. Um, but look, I mean, Oregon fans, like you said, by and large, are pretty positive about landing, and that's a good thing. Um, I like that about this fan base. <laughs> I mean, some people on Twitter are probably, or Scoop Duck are chuckling about, you know, I'm sure we all know there are some people who are, are downers about the Ducks and, you know, <laughs> nitpick this and that. But by and large, like, there was a lot of faith in Cristobal, a lot of positivity about him in his first few years here. You know, we were all in on him until he really brought up some question marks, it seemed like. Um, mm -hmm. And I like that when Lanning takes it over, people approach it with enthusiasm and positivity uh, rather than immediate skepticism. Because I think, like, look, that's just the nature of college football. If you're going to hire a guy, you got to, you know, be behind him and give him your support for two or three years. And after that, you can see what happened and you can make changes, but you can't do the Auburn thing where you handcuff a guy <laughs> as he walks in the door, right? I mean, that just isn't, yeah. that's never going to work. Um, so I like that a lot. Uh, I think it's good to be optimistic, but, you know, we also have to be measured in where we set our goals, how we see this thing, like we said. I mean, in terms of how do I feel about the long-term health of this program? Uh, I feel really good about that under Lanning, especially if we can, if he stays for a while, right? I mean, I'm a little worried about the, us being in this situation again and him leaving, and I, that's not based on anything I know. And he said all the right things, and, you know, he's going to Blazers games. He's stopping by Joey Harrington's house. <laughs> good on him. Like, that stuff's good, but at the same time, we've been through this dance a couple times now. Um so I'm not going to get too oversold on it. And, of course, you also don't want to be Washington fans here. You don't want to, you know, make Sports Illustrated edits about him bringing a national championship to <laughs> Oregon or anything like that um, when he hasn't coached a game as a head coach yet. <laughs> Who would do yeah. that, right? But so uh, I do want to go. I think we can talk a little more about goals of landing. Um, both short and long term in a second. I do want to just kind of wrap things up with Cristobal a bit too for a second here though. Because um, I think, you know, some people are probably like, I roll, I don't want to hear about this guy anymore. But as people who are interested in the trajectory of the Oregon program, he had a big role in it ultimately. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've kind of a funny comparison that I want to swing by you here. And I hope you know, I don't know how tuned into this NBA season you've been or how tuned in our <laughs> listeners are. I have a theory. Cristobal is like a certain NBA coach. And it's going to be interesting to see if you, you agree with this at all. Tom Thibodeau is the name I'm looking at. Mm. He is a culture mm. changer and he's a grinder, right? You look at what happened with the Knicks last year. I hope that people are at least vaguely familiar with this. 
he brings in, a, he comes in and he kind of transforms the culture and they go on this run, right? And things are clicking and it's good. Um, and we saw that happen with Oregon in 2019. Like things came together and it was like, whoa, we're ahead of schedule. This guy has squeezed out a lot of the potential that we didn't even realize that this roster had maybe. Um, and he he's just good at enabling guys to work, I think. Like, even the early returns of him in Miami are interesting. Um, just with the guys, like the quotes I've seen from players there that are taking part in the fourth quarter program that are just like, this strength program is so hard, and I love that. You know, like, mm-hmm. we literally didn't have a coach who pushed us to work and we want to work and get better. Um, so that part that of it is it was really good. But ultimately, you look at people know, hopefully, what's going on with the Knicks this year. There's a lot of burnout. Um, and it turns out that uh, we've seen this with Tom Thibodeau. He did it. He was with the Bulls, with Derrick Rose. He went to the Timberwolves and people thought he was going to kind of lead them up, you know, up into this trajectory with Cat uh, and all these guys. And then it kind of plateaued. And for some reason, they never hit the next gear, even though they overachieved when he first got there and he kind of set things in motion. Um, so that that was kind of I was listening to NBA podcasts and I heard that and I just thought that reminds me a lot of what Cristobal does and why I think yeah, I think he's going to be a good hire at Miami in terms of he's going to get some people to get their shit together and he's going to, you know, not accept some of the BS and people are going to push in the right direction. And there's going to be a lot of positive vibes at first. But ultimately, I mean, we know what happened in the COVID season when you lose to Oregon State. And then this year you lose to Stanford. You get blown out by Utah. Some of that stuff, it's just head scratching and... When you're not on the climb and you realize that, oh, maybe this is, you know, maybe we are at the mountaintop already, it gets a little bit harder to to keep going with what his kind of vision for the program is. I think you have identified a, a very, very interesting comparison here. Um, I'm still trying to turn over in my mind how much I agree with this. <laughs> I, I'll probably I'll probably take like like 75, 80% agreement on it. My perspective is the only the only thing I really know about Tom Thibodeau is that he just plays his starters the entire game pretty much <laughs> and that's why his teams are good. Um, <laughs> like that's why he gets more immediate wins. And yeah. then as you say, you know, the, that's where the burnout comes in as well later on. Um, I think that's a great comp, more so for Mario and how he deals with staff maybe than players. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'll net. I don't think. I think a lot of Oregon's problems last year had to do with injuries more so than motivation. That being said, towards the end of the year, I can see that argument where, like, yeah, I mean, you get you play you have to play this same Utah team again, and you see the same lack of motivation that we saw in the first meeting, like that makes a lot of sense we just also didn't match up well at all with utah though yeah i don't know so i again i i agree with this with the small caveat that uh this is how cristobal i mean cristobal didn't you know he hired a lot of great names 
he didn't exactly retain a lot of great names while he was at U of O, coaching staff wise. Um, I mean, he he fired plenty of people or had them leave for different jobs. So, and yeah, sure, some of them were it suffered mobility. And you talk about his OC and DC both leaving for head coaching jobs. Like, I guess that makes sense, but. But they, I don't know, was was coaching UNLV really that much better for Marcus Arroyo than being Oregon's OC? Well, well, I think I think that one was a little bit of a, I think that was kind of a mutual departure. I mean, I don't know that, but that's kind of what I'm guessing was yeah. like, hey, you know, you might want to take that UNLV job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but even like, yeah, okay, I know, I know that Avalos is you know, alma mater is Boise State. Yeah, but I, I mean, that's a little different than Dan Lanning going, taking the Oregon job, right? You know, like... <laughs> a different scale. Like, there, we're, yeah. not a, we're not waiting for a Power 5 job to come open. We're not waiting for a job with the national title ceiling to come open. We're, we're waiting for a pretty good G5 job to come open. Uh, or in Joe yeah. Moorhead's case... We're waiting for a pretty bad G5 job to come open. Yeah, uh, maybe the worst. <laughs> <laughs> In Akron. Um, zips. But yeah, so my point being, like, uh, I heard Stephen Godfrey talking about this on Split Zone Duo recently. Um, Mario Cristobal is not an easy person to work for. Yeah. I, I don't want to, you know, I want to be clear about that. Um, just because he puts good staffs together and puts good teams together does not mean he's, like, a fun guy to work for. And if you're a college coach who makes millions of money, like, or millions of money, Jesus, uh, millions of dollars, like, every year, you're not, you know, a lot of these guys do not care about your program as much as you do as a fan, period. Like, yeah, they should be because they're in a higher up position than you are. But the fact of the matter is, like, a lot of these guys are just out here to do jobs. And when you have, like, a... I'm not going to call it a toxic workplace, but when you have a difficult environment and difficult standards to meet um, from your head coach, like people often do with Mario, recruiting-wise especially, um, it can be difficult, man. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I I want to qualify all that. Um, I want to get all that out of the way first. But then I also want to say, you know, in a perfect world, I think Mario would have stayed here and he would have kept building what he's building and kept learning from himself, uh, mm-hmm. learning from his own mistakes. Because mm-hmm. we certainly had a lot he could have learned from in that past season. Again, a lot of Oregon's problems were due to injury, but you know we had two major losses to Utah that you can, you should be able to learn some new, learn something from, right? Uh, and unfortunately, now those lessons will be taken to Miami instead of here, but. Yeah. He had a very, again, he had a very sustainable model going here. Don't hate on Mario just because he went to Miami. Like you gotta, you gotta find something a little more convincing than that for me. No, that's that's definitely true. I don't want to go too far in that regard. Um, I mean, he was a grinder, and that's that is admirable quality in a college football coach. Like I think um, it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Cooper Protegna is a guy who worked in the recruiting department at Oregon and Washington. Uh, and he did a interview probably about a month ago on Cover Three, um, but he was talking about you know comparing Cristobal to Chris Peterson, and he said 
Chris Peterson was the best CEO he'd ever worked for in terms of his ability to delegate tasks and do things efficiency, efficiently and with purpose. Uh, and that at Oregon, it was just about the grind, you know? And mm-hmm. that's an interesting difference, right? Um, and sometimes it's like, yeah, it's just, it's just funny, you know? I mean, look, the, at the end of the day, Cristobal beat Chris Peterson every time. Uh, and it might have meant that, you know, Cristobal was pedaling his bike, you know, on a twice, pedaling the wheels three times as fast or something on a lower gear. <laughs> um, but, yeah. you know, ultimately, I guess he won. So that's like, that is admirable for sure. Um, and he produced some good coaches too. I'm excited to see what Ken Wilson does at Nevada. I mean, I liked a lot of that staff and he hired a damn good staff down at Miami. Um, it's an interesting question just of where the Cristobal era was going at Oregon. Uh, I do think, I do think there are some frayed relationships and that grinding mentality was, you know, taking a toll on people, but I don't want to do revision history totally because we defended him on here. Um, and it's interesting what you said yep. about about injuries and some of the you know he had errors in clock management and his offensive philosophy and quarterback. Um, but I like what you said about like you know that's kind of that's kind of there's another side to that which is everything that you're bad at you know is also an area to improve where it's like a clear thing. Imagine if he was just a competent game manager and actually gave his offensive coordinator the ability to call the game, then we would be Mm -hmm. amazing because look, we won a Rose bowl with Marcus Arroyo as offensive coordinator. Like, you know, it's kind of like, or look, we beat Ohio state with Anthony Brown at quarterback. Imagine if we actually did have, (laughs) you know, if Ty Thompson was Trevor Lawrence 2.0 or whatever, like then we would be awesome. Um, so that was yeah, good. and real quick on the quarterback thing specifically, another talking point that I'm stealing from Split Zone Duo is that Mario's already very clearly just in how he's hiring people, learning from mistakes he made at Oregon, specifically relating to quarterback. Hires Josh Gaddis, who yeah <laughs> took a, that was a damn good hire. Interesting, like you know Gaddis Gaddis took Michigan to the playoff with a. Didn't exactly have Denard Robinson at quarterback. <laughs> um, they had a little bit of a mixed system going on there. But Cristobal also, and I believe this is the first time he's done this, hired an OC who wasn't also the quarterback's coach. He has a separate guy working with quarterbacks now um, and making those guys work together. They, they spun it in a much clearer way than I just did, so I encourage you, as always, to listen to the episode. Um, it's the one from last week, I think. Um, but again, I would love for Mario to have learned these lessons while at Oregon and because of the pandemic and because of all the injuries we dealt with last season and the the depth we had or didn't have at certain spots, he really wasn't able to apply a lot of things. Like he wasn't able to learn a lot of things all the while, like he was still winning games. Um, sometimes by the skin of our teeth and sometimes by dropping games, um, which was really interesting. So every, every coaching tenure is deeper than the win-loss record, but um, 
at the end of the day, that's what matters, right? I mean, winning games is what matters, and Cristobal was able to do that by and large. Again, yeah. under a terrible set of circumstances in, in some cases. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's, it's tough to say this because obviously I want to spin everything landing into a positive direction, but I would still rather have, the, you know, I would still rather have Mario Cristobal right now than start over with a new guy, even if it is somebody who I trust in landing. Yeah, I still don't know where I sit on that question totally. Um, I think a lot of Oregon fans would say they'd rather have Lanning, uh, but I think there's some bitterness that's baked into that answer as well, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah like my initial reaction is to agree with that. But, but I mean, you look at the recruiting stuff, you know, you talk about starting over. I mean, there's no doubt. This 22 class, like, we talk about talent mattering and stuff. I mean, yeah, it would be nice to have Tataroa McMillan and Kelvin Banks in Eugene right now, for sure. Like yeah. that would be helpful. Um, and those guys both very good chance that they would be in or be at Oregon along with, you know, Cameron Williams and a litany of other guys who, you know, Cristobal as always was on pace to finish strong in, in the 2022 class. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough to say. I think, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in coach speak. And I remember um, Cristobal talking a ton about that idea of learning from his mistakes. That was one of the things that he always brought up about Nick Saban, who famously kind of flipped his entire offense at Alabama and embraced spread principles and, um, mm -hmm. you know, brought in Lane Kiffin and everything. Uh, and so... Cristobal would always give that lift service. I don't know that he always lived up to it in terms of being, you know, accepting and learning, uh, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, mm -hmm. And I will say, for what it's worth, you know, Lanning talks about that stuff too, and something about his delivery on it I, I like a little more. So I'm hoping, maybe I'm just being an optimist, that he lives up to that, that idea of learning. Because I think adapting in college football is so important. Um, but yeah. to go back to kind of, you know, part of the start of this conversation was just just to I mean, just to recap the Cristobal era, but also to say, like, was he a guy who was good for Oregon for four years? You know, is he a, is he a kind of like that's kind of the knock on Thibodeau to go back to that metaphor is like he's a coach who's good for three years or something, but maybe he's not the coach you want for 10 years. Maybe he's not, you know, Greg Popovich mm -hmm. or in college football, Nick Saban. Um, I also think that another aspect of this conversation that has to be mentioned is, is I feel like the equation changed a bit uh, with Lincoln Riley coming to USC. That, that was a really important thing to me um, because it meant that there just wasn't as much time um, and patience for Cristobal to learn you know, how to develop a quarterback and how to run an offense and like stop losing to Stanford or whatever it is like. It's like mm -hmm. we, we, this it's, it's go time, right? You know, like we can't just get fat on a weak conference anymore. Like Clemson does in the ACC. We have a real coach who's made playoffs, who's consistently dominated a power five conference going into a recruiting behemoth at USC. Um, and so, you know, I heard a lot of people 
a lot of Pac-12 fans say in the immediate aftermath of that, which I don't know how long it ended up being, that we actually thought that Riley and Cristobal would coexist because it was pretty soon after that Cristobal was out the door. But anyways, mm-hmm. um, just saying like, okay, well, look, Cristobal's done this with a talent advantage. Uh, and I tend to think him winning the conference, you know, the two times were was was a good thing, especially in 2019. But they say, you know, look what he had, look what he did with a ta- talent advantage, and he wasn't dominant then, and now he's going to face someone who's proven to be a better coach and is at USC, so we'll probably get equal to or most likely better talent there. How exactly do you catch up to someone who has better talent than you with a worse X's and O's coach? Um, and it was tough to totally disagree with that assessment of, of the two of them. Yeah, I, it, it definitely is, but it's also very reductionist. Like it's for reducing sure. everything about a coach to two things, which is recruiting <laughs> and X's and O's. And yeah. for the longest time, that's exactly how I thought about everything too. Um, you know, I, w- I would just think, oh, Mario, great talent guy, you know, not a great like coach coach though. Uh, there is a lot more that goes into coaching than just those two facets. Oh, that's um, a great point. And I, you know, we won't know, we won't have, we as fans and even as media will not have answers to the other facets of coaching. Um, you know, how does he work with his staff day to day? How does he communicate with recruits? How, you know, how does he manage a roster? We don't know a lot of that kind of stuff and we can't make judgments on a lot of that kind of stuff because we're not in the building. Um, we also, nobody can make judgments right now about whether or not Landing is better or worse than Cristobal because Landing has never coached a, a game as a head coach in his entire life. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to become like public enemy number one for Oregon fans after this. I am an Oregon fan. I'm going to scream just as loud in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, if not louder than everyone else, like just because I expect a little bit less than maybe I would have. Um, had we, you know, stayed the course with Cristobal, like just cause I'm expecting a little bit less this season, um, does not mean like we care any less or that I care any less. Um, and it's certain, I, I have full faith in Lanning. Believe me, I'm a huge Dan Lanning guy. All the research I've done about him, which has been quite a bit, especially going through these cro- coaching profiles. Um, I've literally not seen a bad thing about him like the entire yeah. time. Um, which is pretty remarkable considering the amount of like terrible individuals that exist in this industry. That is, Um, that is a fantastic point actually. (laughs) (laughs) Like he is a good, he seems like a genuinely good dude. Like he has a family he's got. Yeah. No, I mean, mean, whether or not he's going to be, you know, the second coming of of Nick Saban from a character perspective, you really can't find someone who says a bad thing about him. Yeah, and in that sense, like, I almost want to say I see a world in which he has the upsides of Mario, but mm-hmm. is also more adaptable to his surroundings than Mario. Yeah. When Mario is here, it's all about him, right? Not, not necessarily. I'm not calling him, like, a selfish person, but everything was his system. It was done the way he wanted, and it was, you know, all these things with landing. I feel like he's a lot so far from what we've seen publicly, which again is a fraction of what's gone on in real life. He seems a little more flexible. He seems a little more patient. He seems a little more uh, measured in the way he goes about things in Mario. 
I don't know if that's going to produce better or worse results. I honestly don't. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just kind of <laughs> talked myself in the cul-de-sac there, but these are com- like, I guess my bottom line is these are complex issues and you can't, <laughs> you can't reduce whether or not a, an, an inexperienced head coach will be better or worse than a Mario Cristobal. Yeah. Um, and you especially can't analyze it in 240 characters or whatever. So. Well, luckily, we have an infinite amount of uh, minutes to go on this podcast, <laughs> and we routinely make use Listeners of as know. many yeah. as possible. Um, <laughs> we make the most of it. <laughs> we maximize our potential here. <laughs> okay, well, I, I like I like that a lot that I think, yeah, I mean, it would be foolish to kind of go and say, like, oh, Landing is 100% better than Cristobal or not, given that he hasn't coached any games yet, right? Um, but maybe another way to frame this that'll be interesting and and maybe we can go into landing a bit more by doing this is just kind of, let's set some goals here and challenges and kind of outline like expectations in general, um, to say not so much, you know, we're going to hot take and say, oh, landing is going to win a national championship in the next three years, (laughs) but say like, it would be good if he did win this many games next year or something um mm-hmm. all right where do we want to start on this uh do you want to start there we can go with at gray pre's question you know what's the win total in next year that's a good place to start i think you have any thoughts on that um i mean i'm trying to think about what what the vegas line will be on oregon win totals. yeah i i haven't googled it i don't know if those exist yet but Last year it was nine, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep. Uh, I think it would be probably the same thing. Probably a solid nine wins is is like the money wise. That's the expectation. So I would say nine or better is. Jeez, oh, it's so tough to say this kind of stuff. God, I don't want to end up getting sound bitten. Um. I'm going to I'm going to say 10 wins definite success period the end. Um 9 wins most likely I'm happy. I can also envision a world where we win less when less than 9 games and I'm still feeling good about Landing's first season. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um yeah, I've seen that that's where my mind has been for a while too is last year was nine wins uh i think before all this stuff 10 people what'd you say no no, no i'm saying the oh, win, oh, the win total yeah yeah yeah, yeah the yeah. win total i'm saying uh and and i think before this stuff most fans probably thought um oh hopefully there'll be a tick up hopefully we'll be at nine and a half or ten you know if chris wall just held held the course and kept building talent here. Uh, and so a little dip back down or, you know, stay steady at nine as a win total was kind of where my head was at. Um, I know in the comments of this, uh, they were talking about eight and a half. I think someone said seven and a half. I think that's, I think that's a seven and a half feels. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. we mentioned outgoing talent, but there is still enough talent on this roster where you, sh- you we should be favored in pretty much every Pac-12 game. 
Yeah. Al- almost every Pac-12 game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, so, yeah, you look at the schedule. I mean, just to, to outline people of, like, what does nine wins mean? It means we probably lose at Georgia. Hopefully, you know, you – I mean, it, you probably lose it – I say at Georgia because it really is at Georgia. It's, uh, it's at Georgia. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's in the state of Georgia, and we're at Oregon. We're going to call it at Georgia. Um <laughs> And then I guess, you know, you'd say you probably lose to Utah maybe. But I'm not, like, I'm not giving that game up. I know Oregon got blown out twice. Yeah, we we all know. But I'm not giving up on that game. Nor am I giving up on the Georgia game necessarily. In a win totals exercise, I am probably. Um, yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> in real life, I think there is a world where Oregon could win. In a win totals exercise, it's definitely a tally in the <laughs> loss column. Um, we'll pick this up in six months <laughs> yeah but i mean utah ucla washington are you know maybe washington state and byu are kind of five other games oregon state i guess too six that are kind of a little hairier but you expect oregon to win more of those and lose like they go four and two in those mm-hmm. guys and they lose at georgia and you call that a nine win season and uh, probably likely appearance in the Pac-12 title if that game, if that happens. Um, mm-hmm. I think that seems pretty good to me. I, I would bet it's eight and a half or nine when Vegas puts it out. In my mind, um, is is kind of about... where I'm thinking. I don't think it's at eight. I don't. I'd be surprised if I'm it was down to I'm trying to think about eight. potential big storylines for this team next year. Mm-hmm. One of them I'm really concerned about is the the home win streak. I don't remember exactly what it's at. It's in like the 20s or something, right? Yeah. The way I think about it, I just think about it time-wise, right? I, I mention this all the time. The last time Oregon lost a home game was my first game as a student on campus. <laughs> it was the Stanford game. And uh, for reference, I'm about to graduate next term. Hope, knock on wood. Um, so was that's that? how long it's been since Oregon has lost a game in Autzen Stadium. And there are certainly a, a lot of... I mean that BYU game is really probably the the biggest candidate. And that was Utah, year that actually. was year one of Cristobal too. Year one of Cristobal, yeah, yeah. That's that's a trip. That's some symbolic stuff. Going I forget who I forget who we played to open that season. I'm sure there was another game before that, but it, let me pull it up. Yeah, Portland, <laughs> Portland State and San Jose State, of course, in Bowling Green. So technically, his fourth game, but in in Austin, yeah. But I mean, his first big game. Yeah, but yeah, man, I just can't stop. Like, I don't know. What, by the time I'm looking at this schedule, you know who comes I think to we're town. Just gonna be in a lot of. You know who comes to town week five, right? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be something? Um, Jesus, that would be full circle right there. They're really. they're supposed to be um, a little better this year too, actually. According so to returning production, think of stuff. it. Think of it this way, right? Like, most likely, we're talking about most likely outcomes here, or potential outcomes. Yeah. Let's think of a bad outcome. You know, people were talking about seven Mm. or eight wins. That would require losing to Georgia, more than likely, losing to one of BYU or Stanford, which means we would have two losses by the time we hit October, basically. I mean, Wazoo Um, is, Wazoo you could lose to also. 
at Wazoo. I mean, I, I see at a, Arizona. I'm not worried about. I don't yet. think you're going to lose BYU, Washington State, and Stanford back to back to back, two of which are at home. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, that that would be a stretch. In potential, again, these are disaster scenarios. I know it sounds like disaster scenario is you're three and three heading into the UCLA game. Well, disaster scenario is losing to the FCS team, but usually we don't stoop that low around here. So let yeah, we reserve we reserve that for the the pals up north. (laughs) Um. Junior Adams connection, by the way. My Junior Adams article should be coming out soon. He coached Cooper Cup, but he's from Washington. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you somehow so live under a rock and didn't know that by now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, man, the UCLA, don't envision that game being a loss at Autzen. Like, that's well, probably double-digit favorites in that one. Ooh. Again, this is all, like, knock on wood. Yeah, ooh, little, I mean, if UCLA is... No, no, stop, stop. Bro, oh, there's, there's, I think I found the ultimate disaster scenario here. Stop. Landing losing to Wilcox in the opening year, (laughs) we would never hear the end of it, ever. From all, like, I can't even name a single Cal fan, but we would never hear the end. They would come out of hiding just to Mm -hmm. slander us. Um, But down the stretch, I mean, it's just going to be an entertaining season, I think. Like, none of these games... I don't look at any of these games and think that's an, you know, we're going to be favored by like 50 points. And there's like, I, I wouldn't bet my life on any of these games, even like Arizona, Eastern Washington, the Eastern maybe, Washington but, one, probably. Yeah. But Arizona, I mean, like that's the easiest conference game and it's still a road game in the desert coming off Stanford week. It's going to be, it's going to be tough. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see that one getting hairy. More, I could see that one getting hairy more than the Cal one. Um, Colorado is going to be easy. I, it's nice that a lot of these are at home. I mean, we have to remember, like, Cristobal's first year, I always think of one of the strangest games I've ever... Um, I actually didn't watch it. Uh, it's probably one of the only Ducks games I've missed in the past, like, decade. But the 2018 Arizona game, where we lost, like... Just got absolutely destroyed. God, that was depressing. Um, yeah, yeah. I on the road. Like, scrubbed that from my memory. I can't really think of a single play you from that should game. Have. Yeah, I mean, I definitely watched it in my dorm room because it was an away game. Yeah, man, that's that's a good shout. Like again, I hope we don't have these kind of losses where you have to try to scrub your mind of them. Well, you look at that. You look at twenty eighteen. Uh, I mean, here's a classic thing with first-time head coaches or, you know, I mean, Mario wasn't a first-time head coach, but at this level, uh, playing in true road environments against teams that actually care. Um, What did he do in his first year? So the first road game we played was the Cal game. You remember Lamar Winston has the uh, scoop and score at the end of the half that makes that less dangerous than it should have been by – Classic Washington game at home. C.J. Verdell up the middle. Cave on in attendance. The whole thing. Then the game day, next game day in Pullman, <laughs> where Oregon gets absolutely ran through. Like wasn't ever close until a kind of comeback attempt at the end. 
That yeah. game reminded me of the, the Utah game last year. We talked about that's that. That's exactly what I was going to say. I can't believe that didn't come up for me because that is a great comp. Like, that's really the only time. Those are the only times in the crystal ball era where I feel like we really got dominated. Well, except for the next week, which was the Arizona game. <laughs> yeah, again, because right. I just don't even, like, remember that. I, yeah, I know. I literally, I didn't watch it. I was at a... Um, I remember there was a music festival. It's my freshman year music festival in New Orleans that I wanted to go to. Um, and I remember the Red Sox were in the World Series, and so I called oh. my, I called my dad and I go like, "Okay, what happened with like what's going on with the games?" As I'm like walking out of the conf- the um, concert, and he's like, "Do you want the good news or the bad news?" You know, it's quite <laughs> cl- classic. It's like Red Red Sox are winning, but uh, <laughs> but Oregon lost by thirty. And it's like what? Oregon lost by yeah, thirty that's, that's and Arizona. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's one of the things where it's tough to totally be that confident in setting expectations, and you hope that some of the experience on the staff helps. But that is a classic thing with first time head coaches on the road; they just don't. They just don't know how to play mm-hmm. road games. They don't know how to prepare their team. I think the good news is Lanning isn't building a culture at Oregon. That's the good news. There's a culture in place. Yeah. I think there's some leaders on this team that will hopefully kind of teach people how to do this thing. Um, I mean, with that said, there's a lot of guys who have left, right? I mean, yeah. you know, Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red aren't on the team. Um Verone isn't on the team. You hope that like Steve Stevens can be a leader and maybe Triquez is old enough now. And you know, Noah Sewell. Yeah. I mean, already he, a leader. Yeah. Already a leader. Um, Brandon Dorless so is a big one. Yeah. Go ahead. In terms of expectations though, I want to go back to the, the schedule based thinking real quick for me. If we win all our home games, yeah. That's six right there. And you beat the Beavers in Reezer day after Thanksgiving. Beavers are mean at home, though. But wait, win all our home games, you said? If we win all our home games and okay. beat Oregon State, that... <laughs> regardless of what else happens, I will consider that a successful season. I don't care if we crap the bed. Like, well, I'll well, care. But, you know, if we crap the bed in Pullman, for instance, or in Berkeley or whatever, you know, that's bad. But if we can hold down the fort and beat Oregon State, I, I think that'll be, like, the threshold for me being satisfied. Yeah, but, I mean, dude, outside of the Georgia game, the home games and the one at Reeser, that's, like, you know, six of the next seven hardest games. The home games yeah, are the hardest part is. of the schedule. Like, yeah, I mean, if we beat Utah, Washington. That's why I'm setting it as my bar. Well, okay. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess. Sure, I, there, I there are doing. some scenarios where, like, but you if, know, if, you, can, you can copy and paste. To, like, if you want to swap out, like, one or two wins between yeah. the road games and, like, sure, maybe we lose to Utah at home, but we beat the crap out of, like, Wazoo and Pullman or something. Or, like, we – yeah. You know, okay, how about this? I'll trade the Utah, I'll trade a loss, I'll trade one home loss for two road wins in this scenario. Yeah, that makes sense to me. 
whatever it is. But yeah, I mean, I would just say like, <laughs> I, I, I think I, I, I'm pretty sure we're not beating UCLA, Washington and Utah and losing to Cal and Colorado. Like, I don't think that's on the board, but I get what, I get what you were saying. Weirder stuff is happening. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, um. <laughs> okay. So the other, other questions we had, we spent a good while on that win loss, win total thing. That was I fun. Mean, to yeah. summarize nine, maybe eight and a half is what I'm thinking. Is that kind of what you're thinking too? For what Vegas yeah, will actually, much. yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, really quickly, I should have done this at the top, but I just a pet peeve of mine. Like, I just feel people misuse like the terms goals and expectations and stuff like so much on Twitter and just in the fan base in general. In like, what way? Well, it's like people say like, oh, what are your expectations or what are your goals for this season? And then someone says like, or m mostly it's like, what are your goals or what would be successful? And someone says like, mm -hmm. oh, nine wins or something. And then, but then they're saying like, oh, if we get eight wins, this person should be fired. Um, <laughs> it's just like... There I'm, certainly won't be more context to draw from. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I think, you know, goals, the reason that we like to set goals, and I put this down the, the doc, is like, they're meaningful, which means they like have an impact. There's a reason you want to accomplish them because they actually help you if you do them. They're achievable, <laughs> right? They're like, you actually can do them. You don't set goals that you couldn't ever accomplish, but... Mm -hmm an important part of them is that they're not a guarantee, right? Like yeah. the reason yeah. they're a goal is because you could not reach the goal, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> um, anyways, okay. So yeah. another good question we had from uh, Dominic Peterson at DuckZone503. He said, and I like this one a lot, what are the biggest challenges we see this coaching staff facing in the upcoming season? Biggest challenges. Well, my mind immediately goes to roster, but I think just dealing with the first time head coaching thing. Like I know I've mentioned it about 10 times by now this episode, but learning the you know, figuring out what your day-to-day -day has to be every single day as a head coach can be, I mean, I couldn't sit here and figure that out. I can't even sit here and figure out when I'm going to do my homework each week. <laughs> like, and you're talking about planning out your entire schedule pretty much hour by hour and sticking to it every single day. Yeah. I don't even think this dude landing has a house yet. I just checked listings. I don't, I don't think he's bought <laughs> a house in Eugene yet, man. Like, yeah. I, I think that's the biggest challenge is, is just figuring out his own day-to-day -day, being in a new place uh, with his family. You know, there's obviously we've seen in the past like certain coaches can struggle with keeping their family happy in a place like Eugene. Don't think that'll be as big as an issue for Landing and his family, but, you know, there, there's been some infamous stories about that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that, I think that's the, the biggest challenge for me. I'm curious to see what you think, though. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like we do forget about just like the human side of it and that like you have to, like Dan Lanning is a person who has to outline his schedule and stick to it like anyone else, you know? And like yeah. 
has to actually execute on things. Um, you don't just get to like put the attributes in the, you know, video game and hit sim and all exactly, the work gets yeah. done. Um, but, you know, the earlier turns have been good on that. I think we talked about the roads thing and just like dropping a fluke game. You know, well, I might not think that that's going to happen at Colorado or Cal. Wazoo, Arizona. I mean, it sounds crazy to say Arizona. Maybe it could be Colorado, Cal. Maybe it could be Oregon State. That's a worry. I mean, I feel good that at least outside of that Georgia game, there aren't that many big road games here. So maybe there's a nice balance there. And maybe the home crowd can buoy, buoy this team at home. And then on the road, the talent will just get the job done. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing is, you know, just schematically, right? I mean, I think for the staff in general, fixing the offense, choosing the right quarterback, right? I mean, these are going to be ongoing discussions mm -hmm. throughout the entire offseason. But that's a pretty important thing. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I would say it's a challenge in that there's like this big obstacle, but it's like a huge decision that's going to have a massive impact on how the season goes, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I another... and you hope no injuries happen too. I mean, that was the big challenge oh, yeah. from last year, right? Like, so that's a challenge that we can't really foresee right now, but not all of these positions groups are super deep. Um, and so you hope that you aren't faced with any of those challenges, right? I mean, you look at this receiver room, if you guys go down, that would be a really tough thing. Safeties, corners aren't that deep. Uh, linebacker, you really like it. How awesome would it be if Noah Sewell and Justin Flo actually had a whole season together healthy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think about a team like Georgia last year, right? How many teams in the country can lose a player of Adam Anderson's caliber? And I know that wasn't an injury, but, you know, he was gone for the season. How many teams in the country can lose a player of Adam Anderson's caliber, linebacker, and not skip a beat? Right. Like, that, that is the kind of insane depth you have to have um, to be elite. Um, I think, and that, that kind of speaks to something I was thinking about, which is we keep, you know, we'll talk about these names continually throughout this offseason. Cardwell, Franklin, Thornton, Bridges, all these guys, tons of talent. Dante Manning, perfect example. Like, they still got to step up. They still got to show us that, that they can do this job. Yes, of course, they have amazing physical skills. And yes, we've seen like they can do super talented things on the football field. Well, now you got to do it. Like, again, yeah. like you said, this isn't a video game. Like, you can't just punch in these variables and assume that young players, especially, are going to do well. Like, yeah. especially with a new head coach, especially with a new quarterback. It's, you know, guys have to step up. Um, it's not a guarantee that all our young talent will pan out exactly as we want on the field. Yeah. Um, in, gen um, yeah. In, in general, I'd say I feel like there's some more question marks about, you know, some of the skill positions, especially quarterback, and then just the youth at running back, wide receiver, and tight end, which I feel really optimistic about, and I think a lot of fans do, but there's inexperience there. Uh, and then in the secondary, you know, that's pretty visible uh, in terms of like, if you're getting burned, people are going to see it. But I, one thing I feel good about is just on both sides of the ball, this group's ability to get a push against most of the teams that they're going to be playing with. Uh, 
and that can solve a good amount of problems. Like I just think there was a huge investment in the line of scrimmage from the last staff, uh, and they left a pretty, you know, pretty experienced offensive line or at least upperclassmen offensive line. And now, I mean, they've played two years together, so pretty experienced. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of good pieces on the defensive line too, with a couple transfers added in, like in those games where things get, you know, hairy against whoever it is against Arizona or, you know, even Washington, Oregon state, like hopefully, hopefully Oregon can get a push. Will they be able to against Georgia and Utah? You know, didn't seem like they were at the end of last season. Uh, but who mm-hmm. knows with new strength and conditioning, new coaching and everything. Another kind of, uh, more human possibility or challenge that I want to bring up um, is just dealing with the fact, especially this is mostly for, I'm thinking of players and how they, you know, because players process a lot of the same information that we do that comes from Twitter, that comes from different blogs and stuff like that. Um, you know, they have a lot of similar perceptions as we do about the other teams in their conference and around the country and about themselves. Like, this Oregon team is no longer the top dog in the Pac-12, period. Whether you want to call it USC or Utah, just based on perception is, I mean, like technically it's Utah, but USC now has Lincoln Riley. So like that stuff matters. Like that, that's, if that's in a player's head while they're on the field, that matters. You know, Oregon capitulated not once, but twice against Utah because they got in their own heads. It was obvious. Like, I think that type of, you know, that can be dangerous for a program that's looking to rebuild so quickly. Um, you can't feel entitled to anything, right? Uh, again, especially with a new head coach, like nothing is going to be guaranteed. And maybe you could view that as a, you know, you could probably spin it as a good thing. Like, oh, you know, we're not getting everybody's best shot anymore. Like that's reserved for USC or whatever. I think it it more so has to do with the attitudes of players when when they approach games. Um, so that, that is another challenge that I'm a little bit concerned about heading into this year is dealing with internal expectations inside players' heads. What do you expect out of this program this year? And if we get, you know, if we get blasted in our first game of the season, I'm not saying we will, I'm saying if, if that happens, you know, if we drop an early game in one of those disaster scenarios we were talking about, if we drop an early home game, that can destroy the confidence of a team. We've seen it run downhill pretty quickly. Look at LSU last year. Yeah. I lost to UCLA, ruined their season in September. And you could see it mentally like with these kids. Like, yeah, sure, they played a couple teams pretty hard after that, including Bama. But, like, I don't want to fall down that rabbit hole. Um, or I don't want to see this team fall down that rabbit hole more specifically. So that's another challenge I'd, I'd point out. Yeah, I think in general, it's just like the stakes are high with USC on the rise, with this being a first year and everything. You know, I mean, just look at that Georgia game. Like, what could that do? You know, if if it goes really well, you know, if Oregon wins somehow, and obviously they're underdogs for a reason, but let's say they win, what would that do for the confidence and the belief in this program and, you know, how they approach games for the rest of the season, right? But, what did it do last year? Yeah, but, I mean, if they stumble out, out of the gates and, you know, then all of a sudden it's like, who's who's here, you know? I mean, Travis dies at USC, Verone's gone, 
those are the two leaders I would think of, you know, along with Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red, like Kayvon's I mean, gone. That's why guys like Coda, that's why we mention things like experience making tangible differences in a team. I mean, that that's a whole nother side of the Chase Coda edition that I think is really valuable. Like, yeah. he's been through the grind of a Pac-12 season, you know, like, and... Yeah, he's seen the good and bad. <laughs> right, but I mean... Like, just knowing how to work, knowing what it takes and stuff, it's valuable. I mean, that's one of the cool things about college football is that kind of, like, you have a lot of guys who come in their first year and, like, just the difference between the age and the dynamics between the upperclassmen and the underclassmen um, Mm -hmm. and trying to find that balance on your roster of, you know, fresh young guys and the talent and stuff with guys who have experience and, yeah. Um, well, it kind of leads into the, the last question we have on here, which is how realistic and how important is winning the conference? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's as important as ever. Right. <laughs> um, I don't think it's any less important to win the conference just because we might have a little, you know, we might be giving Lanning a little bit of leeway. Winning the conference would do, I mean, immeasurable amounts of good for a first-year head coach in this spot. Um, yep. <laughs> period the end like I expect I, I meant to bake this into my win total expectations but I the expectation for me is to still win the north that's, yeah, I that's think kind that's of like bullet point it. number one honestly like you win the north more than likely like you're winning probably nine games and you're beating Washington and that's like really what matters for me so winning the conference I mean that would mean a whole nother level because again, the big boys in the South are, are on top right now. Like USC and Utah, perception-wise, are really, really high up there. And winning the conference would mean a win over at least one win over one of those teams, more than likely. So, um, not necessary, but so I guess you could say it's a little less important than usual, actually, because like. You know, last year the goal is to, or the expectation is to win it, whereas this year it's more of a goal. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? But yeah, I think that's interesting. Like, you're right that last year it felt like an expectation. This year it's more of a goal. But on the other side, it almost is more important just because of the context, especially of USC looming. Like, yeah, it sucked that we didn't win it last year. But before USC was back, it was like, well, we can screw around and, like, you know, as long as we're pretty good in 2023, like that's supposed to be the year, but you know, no one's really going to mess it with us. Who's going to take our recruits? Like, Oh great. Utah won the conference. Like even if they beat us twice, they're not really good. You know, they're not going to flip our guys, our recruits. Like they're not really going to affect the talent. Uh, USC can definitely do that. Right. Um, I mean, that's a big thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, just quickly in terms on this point, is it realistic? Yeah, and it's very important. Like that's what that is most of my focus, and I think a common thing that we're going to be talking about a little more this year. You know, last year it was like, oh, playoff, playoff. What's the playoff? What's going on with the playoff? And now it's going to be like every week, like, okay, here's how the conference is shaping, shaking out, like let me get my North division scenarios down, you know, let me see, mm-hmm. like, I want to really know that we're in position to get this thing. Um, 
What if yeah. those were the same conversation in an 18 player? Is <laughs> your mind blown? Uh, uh-huh. I had to. It was, it was yeah, too yeah. right in front of No, me. I don't blame you. <laughs> um, all right. So another thing just quickly, and we're pretty long here, but I wanted to mention USC looming a bit and just do a quick little spiel on it myself. Um, I think that this season is so important because on the recruiting trail right now, USC and Oregon are both totally operating on like blind hype, you know, and they basically Mm -hmm. get to just sell whatever dream they want to any kid and say, you know, their, their program is going to look like this and their quarterback's going to win Heisman and their running back is also going to win the Doak Walker like they can do whatever they mm-hmm. want basically. I mean USC probably literally is acting like you know it's going to be the second coming of Reggie Bush and Matt Liner and all that. But it's like the the that's why this year is so important because the you know rubber has to meet the proverbial road like there are going to be results and it's going to be a whole off season after this that these two programs are going to be able to recruit off of uh, we beat Oregon or we beat USC or we won the conference, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I think this is why, you know, in terms of long-term expectations, it's tough for me to set them right now because we don't really know what USC is yet, uh, especially in terms of recruiting. It's going to be really interesting to see where they kind of settle in because I know a lot of people say who don't follow like the details of this as much, you know, just say, what are you talking about? USC is going to recruit well, like, yes, but it matters how well they recruit because USC back in the day at its peak would get top three classes could even land the number one class. They have the number one class in 2023 right now, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, you know, this is going to test this idea of, has the USC brand actually taken meaningful damage over the past decade plus? You know, is there a way to look at it? Yeah. We talk about that all the time. Right. Like, was it just Helton being incompetent or like, is there a real difference in the way that recruits and families view USC, you know, and, even view USC versus how they view Oregon. I would argue that there is. I know a lot of people say like, look, when USC's good, no one has a shot. And I think that's, I mean, USC has a huge, huge geographic recruiting advantage, but at the same time, it was different back in the day when, you know, like D'Anthony Thomas going to Oregon was mind blowing, but that stuff's happened Mm -hmm. now. Like people have, those players to look at not only but then also like you know back in the day it was literally like you go into LA and you know yeah there were players who players who Oregon had always drawn from in California but there was the up-and-comer and everyone's dad you know and you know everyone's uncle and stuff like they were like who's Oregon when I was a kid Oregon didn't do anything you know when I was growing up we didn't know anything about Oregon now it's like you know, people born, whatever, maybe it's not your dad, maybe it's your older brother or whatever, but people have real memories of Oregon or even, you know, people at least, even if it wasn't when they were kids, they know a decade ago, two decades ago, Oregon was pretty good. Oregon's been pretty good for a long time. 
that stuff like matters, I think. Um, I don't know that for sure because USC hasn't gone kind of supernova mode again since Oregon's kind of done some of this stuff. Um, but it's mm-hmm. we have to learn like what beast Oregon is dealing with at USC. Uh, but they also like there's many different ways to do this thing, I think, too. You look at like I always like to point to and I did this on the Georgia pod. You look at what happened with Oregon in the 2019 class, and I think people saw that as like the first year Cristobal had a lot of recruiting success, and they said, okay, that's what he did. This is amazing. But it doesn't always have to look like that. You look at what Oregon did in 2021, it's very different in terms of the regions that they're pulling from. The the 19 class was amazing because Oregon literally won head-to-head recruiting battles versus USC for Mikhail Wright, Mace Funa, Jonah Tawanu'u, and, you know, to some extent, Kayvon, even though Bama was actually the final guy. But, I mean, it should have been a USC guy just mm-hmm. based on location. But Oregon yeah. doesn't have to recruit that way. There's a lot of flexibility. Um, so I would just say this season's especially important for recruiting. Uh, and to wrap things up in that regard two things if you want to know the details of it if you're into a bunch of stuff two things listen to the last podcast with jonathan go read scoop Mm -hmm. duck obviously always like we always say um then if for people who just want like a single nugget they're like i don't really care about all the details of recruiting but i care about the you know how oregon's program projects i want some little thing to care about nico the quarterback, top 10 player, Nico Iamleva. I don't know. I'm probably butchering that one. I Yeah, Iamleva. Yeah. That's as close as I can get. Right. Nico, look that guy up. This this is the guy in <laughs> 2023. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you just, I mean, you just pull up, you know, on three player rankings 2023 class, he's like one of the first 10 guys. You don't even have to scroll a page down. It's not hard to find him. Oregon is very much in it for him. Jayhawk put a prediction in for him. He visited on campus already. He's probably going to visit again. That is a massive thing because I talk about flexibility. Oregon can go into Southern California and recruit a top 10 class out of there, or they can pick from Washington and Colorado and Utah and whatever, you know, Arizona. Yeah, there's, 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 there's all this flexibility. The one thing that is not flexible in college football is you need a good quarterback. There's no, you can't cut corners in that regard. Uh, and Nico is the guy early on. If, and he's probably going to decide, you know, in April, it looks like. So you lock him you in. You get your quarterback, oh. to, you get that quarterback together and the rest of the 23 class falls into place. Exactly. Much guaranteed. Exactly. So I know a lot of people are going to say like, yeah, I know that name and everything. But for a few people who follow this recruiting stuff a little less closely, if you want to just a little anchor into it, that's the guy to look at because you really can't overstate the impact that will have in filling out this entire class. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so that's that's the one. That's my last That's a great way to put it. And if you're looking, if you're the type of person who needs all these names and information organized in a big board, I have just the spreadsheet for you, and it will be posted in the Scoop Duck forums once again pretty shortly, or I'll do something to bump it up. In the, It kind of got lost in the shuffle down there, um, but I know some people were using it. It's funny. Sometimes I would like log on to 
I, I would edit the spreadsheet like occasionally just formatting stuff mm-hmm. and like random, you know, those random like Google Sheets little icons like pop up in the side, like anonymous <laughs> chameleons, like viewing. <laughs> oh, what's up? Hey. Um, so yeah, go check that out if you just want a more organized version. Um, and, you know, feel free to at me in, in the forums if something, some information needs to be changed. For, for the record, before we get off, uh, I completely agree with everything you said about USC. I think that's very valuable. Um, and yeah, man, it's going to be interesting to, to see who runs this. At the end of the day, if the Pac-12 isn't involved in the national conversation, like, hey, at least we got each other to hate, right? Um, True. With all that being said, uh, I, I don't have anything else unless you do. No, I'm ready to uh, start my Mardi Gras weekend and uh, talk to everyone on the other side of that. (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy it. Take a few shots for me. (laughs) Uh, And good luck. Um, Go Ducks. Go Ducks.